Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. My guest for this episode is Dave Jackie, a designer from Massachusetts and author, along with Eric Tonesmeyer, of Edible Forest Gardens, Volume 1 and 2. Today he joins us to discuss ecological culture design. Dave is a returning guest to the show. You can hear about his background and how he came to do this work in that initial interview, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. If this is your first time hearing Dave on the podcast, I recommend you start there to get a feel for the level of candor you'll hear in this episode. As with that first show, I left a lot on the cutting room floor. This is an open and honest conversation about the four components of ecological culture design. Technology, resources, social and economic structures, and cosmology. We discuss how these are elements that we should design for in permaculture systems. They matter because these are the pieces we must work with in order to bring the so-called invisible structures of permaculture to the forefront. Dave and I end the conversation with a constructive critique on what it means to organize, practice, and teach permaculture. If after listening to this interview you have questions or comments, or there is any way I can help you with the work of social permaculture, or whatever your path may be, please get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or you can send me a letter. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. As this episode comes out during the holiday season, I want to give thanks to you, the listener, for helping to make this show bigger and better year after year. You're the reason that I can continue recording great interviews like this one. Thank you very, very much. Now then, on to Dave Jackie. I'll join you afterwards with a correction and thoughts on this episode. Dave, since you've been on the show before, I will include a link back to the earlier interview that we did, which was rather candid for people who want to hear more about your biography and background. So why don't we go ahead and just move into the topic and begin the conversation of ecological culture design. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's good to be back and uh, good to be talking with everybody. I guess I'm talking with you, but everyone's listening in. I guess where I really want to start first is with my intention for this conversation. I was thinking about this that this morning uh, at around 4.30 while I was watching the sunrise. And, and you know, what I, what I often pray before I teach or give a talk or whatever is what I want to say now. And that, that my intention here is to be of great service. And Really, service is a, is a key concept for me, as I hope we'll come back around to in the conversation. But if not, you know, that's fine. It, it's just what I want to do is to be of great service in this conversation. And that's what my intention has been my whole life around this work. And that even in my, if I misspeak or that somehow I'm, I, I have an, an error of thinking or speaking, that, that even that can be of service. And so that's my intention for this conversation first of all. So thanks for having me on and making that, that opportunity available to me. Yeah, ecological culture design. So way back, way back when I was a young buck, when I was, gosh, how old? I must have been 17 or 18 years old back in the, in the 70s, before I even heard about permaculture. And I was in my second or third year of college at Simon's Rock College in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I had taken a year of ecology and was taking a, a future international systems class with a guy named George Beebe, political science professor 
And I had to write this paper about, about the future and the future international system for him. And I've been developing ideas. And really, since I took ecology starting in 1976, 77, I, I took a year of ecology. And, and I really been, I was so struck with the perspective, which I now realize, you know, as my professor, Marty Nauman, was a, a systems ecologist. He was a follower of, of Odom. And I just assumed that all ecology was systems ecology. I now, I now know that's not true because most ecology these days is reductionist ecology, not systems ecology. But I took ecology and I was like, we got to be applying this thinking to the way we design human systems. Like, that's crazy. You know, I was, I was actually 16 years old when I was taking ecology, my first year in college. And that was 1976-77, like I said. And, I mean, little did I know that Miles and Holmgren were around the same time were thinking along similar lines. And so I started developing my own, my own theories because there was nothing out there that I could find at that point that was supporting where I was going. And I developed, began developing this model thinking about human beings as an ecological species and realizing that culture, you know, our bodies are still evolving physiologically. That's still occurring. I mean, if we have cell phones for many generations, there may be evolutionary adaptation, you know, favoring people who are resistant to cell phone radiation, that they may be more genetically successful, especially with people starting to use cell phones at the age of two or three or whatever the heck people are doing these days. So there may be evolution in the direction of people who are more resistant to cell phone radiation, for example, but that's going to take generations, right? However, cultures evolve faster, supposedly. I think they do, generally. Cultures evolve much, much faster. And so culture as a system is our species' main, our primary adaptive mechanism. And I began thinking about what is culture and what are, we, what are we working with? If we need to change our culture, what are we working with? And so I began developing this model and it's evolved. And I have this paper, which I hope you'll post on your website that people can read. That's, I, I should probably put a Creative Commons license on that thing or something. I'll give that to you maybe before you post this interview so people can read the article. It's like a five-page article that I, I wrote the first draft of in 1994, but I, I wrote this paper back in 1977 or something, and I theorized that culture is comprised of four pieces. The first piece is resources, which are perceptual phenomena. If you, if you imagine a circle, and the, the circle is in a, in a field, so the, the whole field represents the world of nature, and there's a circle that represents the world of culture. First primary thought is that culture is part of nature, where it's within nature. It's our way of adapting to ecosystems. Well, resources are one of the main interfaces, how we interact with nature, with the non-human world. And you can have a tree in nature, and it has its own intrinsic characteristics, just as permaculture talks about. You know, we, we talk about what are the different needs and yields and characteristics of a tree, but we're looking at it from a human eye of, you know, how can I use that as a resource? But we're also in permaculture trying to understand that tree as itself as best we can so that we can design to make a system where that tree can be true to its inherent nature. It's not under stress. Its needs are met. It's not having forced function. And all of its natural functions are allowed. That's what Mollison defined as harmony. And stress is when you're not having your needs met you're not allowed to perform your natural functions, and there are functions forced on you that are unnatural. That's stress. So stress and harmony are a dichotomy, 
and we're trying to design harmonious systems by analyzing and understanding and assessing the uh, niche, essentially, of the different species we're working with. So that that species can be stress-free, can be true to its inherent nature, and we're designing a system for for that tree. But we can then, when we bring the tree into the world of culture, it becomes a resource. And, And so a resource is a perceptual phenomenon. You have the tree in nature, it's got its own intrinsic value, its own intrinsic worth, its own direction in life, and then we, bring, we cross that boundary between culture and nature, and it becomes something less than its full self, unless we're doing permaculture systems, I hope, if we're doing it well. And so that is the, the basis of culture, is resources. And then we have our technologies, our tools. That's the second aspect of culture. And we're, we surround ourselves with tools. And that is the basis of much of, of what we call culture. What we learn about ancient cultures is by understanding, looking at the tools and understanding the tools. And there's this relationship between technology and resources. They are, they're a system. There's a, there's a double-headed error between them, so to speak. So, you know, there's that saying, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Because the tools we have influence what we perceive as a resource. But the things you perceive as a resource would also influence the tools that we create and how we use them. So those two things are together. And then we have the third part is the social and economic structures, what people in permaculture call invisible structures. This is one of my pet peeves. I don't remember if I talked about this in the last interview, but we call social and economic structures invisible structures. That, that is just pure jargon, and I'm not a fan of jargon. Right? We need, sometimes need specific language that, to explain things that the culture doesn't have words for, you know, like gills and so on. But... To call it invisible structures, it's like, well, what does that mean? The word itself makes the, the thing we're talking about invisible. And I'm not a fan of that. If you call them invisible structures, they'll remain invisible. Let's call them what they are, social and economic structures, okay? So the social and economic structures are the third element of culture. And, of course, you know, there's all different aspects to that that we could talk about that I sometimes do talk about, and, and I know one of your listeners asked questions about my axes of social system design. We'll get to that later. But there's, a, of course, a double-headed error between the social and economic structures and the resources and the technology because the tools we have can only be created within a certain social and economic structure, and certain things can only be used as resources in, social, in certain social economic structures. For example, uh, using uranium as a resource to make nuclear weapons or nuclear power plants or for radiation medicine or whatever, you know, only a certain kind of social and economic structure can, can do that, can refine uranium to the point where it's useful in those applications. And the technologies, I mean, not many people know how to make a flint knife. That's a technology that is, that is associated with a certain kind of, of social structure, whereas a nuclear power station, it has to be a centralized, you know, hierarchical, highly specialized social and economic structure for that technology to exist and capital intensive, you know, large amounts of money flow and all that kind of stuff. So those three things relate to each other. And I would say that in many ways, the permaculture movement began with a focus on technology and resources and some discussion of social and economic structures and kind of implicit in the first permaculture book, and, you know, somewhat explicit, mostly implicit in the first permaculture book, Permaculture One, there was definitely some philosophy and so on, but, but there really wasn't much talk about social structures in permaculture one. And there was much more development of social and economic structure 
ideas and, and techniques or strategies in permaculture as we went through the 80s into the 90s. I think we have a huge gap there. We have a lot of work to do on that, on that score because, it's, you know, I've been observing permaculture as a movement and, and people's, people's attempts at systems for, well, it's been 30, how many years has it been? Wait a minute, 33 years. 1981 is when I took my permaculture course. So it's 33 years I've been tracking what people are doing to some degree. And there's been a lot of failures of permaculture systems, including ones that I've been directly involved in. And the proximate cause of most of those system failures has always been social and economic structure, lack of design or poor design of those. Now, the thing is that, that that's not always the real cause. The real cause is, is, is very often, in my experience, my interpretation, the fourth element of culture, which is what I call the inner landscape or cosmology or, you know, I used to say belief systems, but it's more than just about beliefs. It's about a whole, a whole panoply of the inner experience of what it is to be human. And, and that is essential and fundamental. It's like the DNA of the cell. And the, the model that I use now, the, the cosmology piece of the inner landscape is an interior circle inside the big circle and the out the, the ring the donut is divided into three pieces with this resources technology and social and economic structures and of course the cosmology or the inner landscape has double-headed errors to all three of the other elements because they affect each other there's an interconnected system you can't separate one from the other and this frame of culture as having at least these four components as a system has been the, the framework that I've approached that when permaculture came out, permaculture one came out in 1978 and I bought a copy, ordered it from Australia in 1979 and read the book and it fit right into what I was doing, but took, took my thinking on the practical level five or six or seven steps beyond anything I'd ever gotten to at that point. I was only 18, 19 years old at that point, but I mean, it was, it was a, a huge leap in my, in my development, but this model has informed my whole perspective on what we're doing in permaculture all the way along. And I, I see what goes on in permaculture missing some key components, okay? So the core one, the most important one, is that inner landscape piece. And there's this whole debate, you know, is permaculture a design science or is it a, got this spiritual component? I don't use the word spiritual very much in this context or actually much at all. It's not a word that's easily defined at all. So, uh, you know, I don't, I like to try and know what the words are that I, what the meanings are of the words that I use. But I submit to those who, who say that we should not, don't need to look at the woo-woo stuff, as they call it, that they're not being scientific if they're not looking at that stuff. Because if we don't self-observe, if we don't deal with the philosophical, if you will, or the paradigmatic elements of culture, then we're just going to recreate the same problems over again because we're, gonna, we're not going to be revising and be self-critical about how we're seeing the world. You know, the Talmud has this quote that I use quite a lot. We see things not as they are. We see things as we are. And that quote rings so true for me. And, it's, and that quote, when it came into my life in 1999, changed my life dramatically because it hit me at the right moment and I realized, you know, who do I want to be? What do I want to see? That question, those two questions are critical questions. You know, if you want to go upstream and design in the high end of the watershed, then we need to go to the inner landscape because that is where 
we have the most power to influence the social structures, the economic structures, the resources, the technology of any place. So yeah, there's part one of my rant. And I know I sent you that article. I don't know if you have any thoughts in response to all that. I think that you gave a good summary. One thing that will help is for anyone who's listening to this, there's a copy of the image that you were talking about, the diagram of ecological culture design. I'll make available on the website for anybody to take a look at. And if we're able to, I'll also post to the Facebook page because I know a lot of people see this stuff there for the day that this comes out so that as folks are listening, they'll be able to see this and have an idea of what you're referring to. The movie War of the Worlds, you know, the Orson Welles? Mm -hmm. In that movie, the Martians have these flexible, like tubular eyeball things that they, they were sending into different places to see what's going on. And they actually, the eyes have that shape of that same circle with the, the two circles and the three parts. So I think of War of the Worlds every time I see that image. It's pretty funny. But so maybe I'm a Martian. I don't know. That description, you referencing War of the Worlds and the diagram and the flexible arm with the eye on it, that's kind of a shared experience for the two of us to understand that reference. Yeah. And that's what I think about when it comes to culture. There's When I look at the world and I consider an educational framework. Uh -huh. I use an idea from the philosopher Gadamer and philosophical hermeneutics. Ah. That's something that you're familiar with? Well, the word hermeneutics, it's a very important field, actually. And we'll get, we'll get into that because I want to connect. I'm going to connect all this to the design process at, at some point here. So go ahead. Sorry. When I look at my long-term personal goals for education and other things, I'm using the framework of philosophical hermeneutics and how we learn and how we transmit knowledge. Yeah. Within that idea that it's not just a one-way transmission of information, but it's about a dialogue and the cultural context in which we exist. Mm-hmm. So when I hear your breakdown of this, when I think about cosmology, I think of that as kind of this nebulous representation of all of our cultural dynamics. The whole diagram or the cosmology circle? The cosmology circle as a way in which we interact with the world, that we build these ideas of resources and technology and social and economic structures on. And from that, that's how, as individuals, the culture that we have within that cosmology circle is what informs our understanding of the other pieces. And that you and I can talk about, to go back to Orson Welles, we can talk about War of the Worlds and have a particular frame of reference. Right. So there's an understanding there that someone else might not have. Exactly. And that I think it was when looking at yields, when I first started the show and started examining Holmgren's principles for the first time, it started with Mollison and about it's not what you can take from something, but what it has to give you. And then thinking about yields as, to use the, some of the business language, primary, secondary, tertiary yields, value-added products, value-added yields. And that the more that I applied permaculture and that idea from Mollison to yields, the more of those things that I found from a single element within a design. And it was only as my understanding of the framework of permaculture philosophically expanded 
that I was able to step further and further away from that common dialogue of the garden and be able to begin looking at these bigger pictures. And when I first started all this, it was really just resources was about the only thing that my initial permaculture exposure touched on. Well, right. And, you know, a swale is a technology. You're using the soil as a resource to create the technology, but it's an appropriation of soil as a resource to create a technology. You know, you're using a tool also to make the swale, but the swale itself is a technology. So when we're talking about herb spirals, it's a technology. And so much of permaculture education is focused on technology, 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 technology. And I find that really narrow-minded, short-sighted, and sad because the cool thing is that, you know, because culture is a whole system, let's see the, the ice man that showed up in the Alps, the melting of the glaciers up there, and, you know, they look at the tools that he had on his person, and they can interpret so much about the culture that he was engaged in by looking at the tool, because the tool is a hologram of the whole culture. You can't have the tool separate from the culture. The tool is a representation of the culture. And so we can interpret tool. Now, of course, you know, when you start starting to talk about interpreting the cosmology of, a, of an ancient culture that we have no written record of, and you're trying to look at the tools that a culture had and interpret what the cosmology was, that's very fuzzy, right? But you can more easily assess the resources that they were using based on the tools. And you can do a, somewhat of a job assessing and getting a sense of the social economic structures based on the tools that pe- people leave behind. But you're, you're getting farther afield, and, and, and the hologram image gets fuzzier and fuzzier the more you go into social and then the inner landscape. But you can st- it's still a whole system. So embedded in all the technologies that we teach in permaculture is this culture. There's no way around that because it is a whole system. And this takes me back to the days of of studying sociology and anthropology and to some extent archaeology that the tools that exist in a certain area at a certain time are a result of, for lack of a better term in the moment, progress to that point. There are conversations about, well, what if... You know, the printing press had existed 200 years earlier. Well, it might not have mattered because there were other pieces of technology that were dependent on the printing press existing when it did. And if they weren't there, then it couldn't happen. And all the changes that have to occur. We may have been able to conceptualize about some of these technologies earlier, but without the pieces to actually bring them into reality, we couldn't. Well, you know, Da Vinci had designs for submarines. He could envision all kinds of stuff, but there wasn't the economic need for it. There wasn't the political need for it. No one had a use for it, nor did we have the tools to create some of them, you know. So, you know, these are emergent technologies, all of these things. You know, there's a thing in, in systems theory about emergent properties, emergent elements. And in Buddhism, there's this, it's called dependent co-arising which is different than codependent arising. It's dependent co-arising. And what that means is that, you know, the story there is that the Buddha, as he was deep in meditation and, and in the final moments of his, as he was becoming and crossing the threshold into full enlightenment, as he opened it, he was sitting underneath the, the pipala tree and he, he opened his eyes and he was looking deeply into the pipala leaf, into a single leaf of the pipala tree. 
and he, he looked, penetrated with his deep awareness, and looked, penetrated that leaf with his awareness, he saw the sun because the leaf could not exist without the sun. He saw the clouds because the leaf could not exist without the rain. He saw all these different things that that leaf could not exist without. So the leaf, in a way, is, is an emergent element of a system, and if you take away one of those essential pieces, the leaf disappears. You know, and the same is true of us. That's part of the, the point of all this. And, you know, he, if anyone, I don't know how many people have studied Buddhism. I think more people in permaculture should. I think the Buddha had a, a very clear sense of how things are put together, you know, with his very keen observation and self-observation. Okay? Now, people talk about Buddhism as a form of spirituality. I don't think that's true. I don't think it is a spiritual thing. I think it's intensely practical, and any good spirituality is, if you ask me. But he was trying to just have clear perception of what is. And when you understand, you know, he was able to see the interconnectedness of things and realize by, by understanding that about the temple leaf and extending that, that insight to himself, he could say, look, my existence is dependent on all these other factors, and if one of those factors that changes, then I change, and I, I won't exist anymore. And so my existence is dependent on all these other things. That means I have no independent existence. Therefore, there is no I. There is no self. That's what the doctrine of no self is all about. And if you understand ecology, that's true. Yet we get into this stuff in permaculture about, well, permaculture you know, as a thing, as an identity. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. Permaculture is not a thing. It's a process. The word is so problematic. That's a whole other story. I don't want to go down that road. But I kind of hate the word permaculture, actually. But I've gone through a number of years where I dissociated myself from the word and tried to dissociate myself and not have it, the word be associated with me, partly because of political dynamics and the movement and and because it seemed like there is, it wasn't all there, you know, and I still have that feeling sometimes. You know, I actually fought against Chelsea Green putting the word permaculture in the title of, my, of Edible Forest Gardens. I didn't want that in the subtitle of the book, and I lost that fight. And so, you know, whatever. I, you know, I'm not worried about what we call it. I'm interested in the work we're doing, and, and are, are we actually designing cultures? If we're focused only on agriculture, we're playing with less than half a deck, way less than half a deck. But even if you're designing a garden for someone, you're always designing their culture as well. If you don't account for people's economics, if you don't account for people's labor availability, if you don't account for people's sense of ownership or sharing in the design of a garden, you're not, it's not going to work for them as well as if you do. It just won't. So we're always designing culture, whether we're aware of it or not. Let's be aware of it, you know? And then, you know, you were talking earlier, you started getting into hermeneutics and philosophy, and there are these words that, these concepts in philosophy that I think are really important for us to get really conscious of, and I'm going to use the, the, fa the fancy-schmancy words, and then we'll talk about what they mean, but I remember when I wrote that, my, my paper, and when I was 18 or 19 on this topic, when, when I first began developing this model, I talked about ontology, epistemology, and I think it was axiology. So ontology is the study of the nature of existence. What actually exists? Does God exist or not? Does 
does, you know, does a thing exist separate from my perception of it? What actually is true? What is actually true in the world? And then epistemology is what is the nature of knowledge? How do we know? What are valid ways of knowing what's true? Because what's true and what's what we know to be true are two different things. There are things that are true that we don't have any clue about. There are things that we know to be true that are false, that we think we know are true that are false, etc. And we need to understand our own cultural set around these things. And in your interview with Stephen Harrod Buner, he was using the phrase forms of mentation. And that relates to epistemology. How, what, what kinds of thinking are we doing? You know, that's a really critical piece. I realized back when I was a teenager in college, my sense of my bodily energetic was that I, I was from my chin up and the rest of me was my body, the rest below my chin was my body and that was somehow separate from the I that was the I. And I began asking myself the question, what would it be like to have embodied thinking, to have my thinking be integrated with my body? And now as people are studying neuroscience in intense ways, we're realizing there's no separation between the body and the mind. It's a body-mind. It's one thing, right? Yet the cultural set that most of us in Western culture have grown up with is totally the core problem I think we're trying to solve in permaculture. It comes down to this belief that humans and nature are separate and that body and mind are separate and that God and physical reality are separate if you believe in God, right? And that separation consciousness is at the root of everything that I think is going on. Every time I deeply investigate inside myself or externally and I think through, all right, why do we have air pollution? It's because, you know, it's like it boils down to belief and separation. I would love to hear someone challenge that and try to find some problem that we face that permaculture is trying to solve or that our culture faces right now that is not founded at its essence on the belief that in separation. If that is the core problem we're trying to face, and what ecology does is teach us that everything interconnects um, and that, that, that permaculture is about systems of interconnected design or designed interconnected systems or whatever combination of those three words you want to use, systematic interconnected design, you know, then that's a huge chunk of the paradigm shift that we need to deal with here. And if you go into that paradigm deeply enough and do self-observation, then you will realize that to be an ecological design scientist, you have to investigate your own internal experience and do that inner work. There's no way around it. Otherwise, you are being blind and narrow-minded and possibly running an avoidance game that you don't want to deal with some issues. I have issues. I will totally own that. Maybe no one else does, but I don't think that's the case. So I talked about ontology and epistemology. There's one other one, and that's axiology. And axiology, permaculture is based in three ethics. Ethics are part of axiology. You've got ethics and values and aesthetics, all right? And what do we believe about beauty and harmony? That's what aesthetics is about. Ethics is about what's right, what's good, what's, what's valuable, what do we value, what are, we, what are our aims in life, all right? That's axiology. And in order to have 
a coherent culture where our tools and our resource use and our social structure and our cosmology are coherent, that they're vibrating in harmony. We have to investigate at least these three elements, not to mention our, our experience of ourselves and the way we deal with our emotions. And the word that I used, that you used earlier, is framing. How do we frame things? Are we framing permaculture as a design science? Are we framing permaculture as ecological culture design? And you know what? Each one of us gets to choose. We all are free to choose how we define permaculture. That's the reality. In having that open reality, that also provides a space for people who want to do this work not to associate themselves with that language as well. Which language? To call work permaculture or not. Oh, absolutely. Call it the oogie boogie if you want. I don't care, man. Just do it. One of the questions that came from a listener was about was about how we could bring permaculture back together as kind of a unified movement, as you said before we began, if it ever was. Do you think that that openness and freedom is as much of a service to the people who want to do this work as it creates, if you will, issues for defining what that work is in a broader context? Well, I mean, I could go back and quote. I was going, I was looking for that quote because I wanted the exact quote for that question that you raised. But you know, he said, "I'd love to hear Dave's insights on how to make permaculture back in, back into a unified movement and his favorite way to attract more people to permaculture." So. You know, when I read that, I laughed out loud sitting here by myself because I'm like, oh, was it ever unified? That was my first reaction. With that question, what I'm wondering with the openness of how to define permaculture and how to use permaculture, how far can we move away from how it's defined? Like, what are its primary characteristics that make something permaculture? Okay, that's a really good question. And I think that you know, with the whole Permaculture Institute of North America effort, people trying to reorganize PINA, Permaculture Institute of North America, and or not trying to, but reorganizing it and setting out a list of, you know, here are the things that are going to give you a certificate, and here's what they, what you know, they're they're getting they're getting clear on some standards for what permaculture teaching is and what a permaculture design course or PDC is, and you know who can teach permaculture courses and all that stuff. And at some level, I applaud that, okay? It's like, it's like things are so kind of ragged and chaotic that some sense of order might be, might be good. But then again, I'm not so sure. This gentleman came up to me. I don't, I've never met him before as far as I know, and I don't think I've ever seen him since. But he, he said, Dave, you know, I just want to raise this thing with you that I think relates to your question and to what's going on with Pina, for example. It's a framing question about what, how we're framing permaculture. And David Holmgren talked about this in an article he wrote years ago as well. And this, this guy comes up to me after I gave this talk uh, and, and we had this discussion, and he talks about how in set theory, in mathematics, I believe what he said was there are two different kinds of set. There may be others. I haven't gone to look into this to see if there's more than the two, but he said there's bounded sets and centered sets. So a bounded set is where you say, these are the boundaries, you're either in or you're out. This is what permaculture is, and if you meet these criteria, you're in. If you're not, don't meet those criteria, you're not doing permaculture. A centered set is saying, here's the core of what permaculture is, 
and you are free to move your place yourself in whatever distance you want from that core. There's no boundary. There's just movement and relationality, and, and you're, you're closer to the center or further from the center, and that's it. I would argue that the structure that Bill Mollison laid out in 1985 at the Australian Permaculture Convergence that got published in the International Permaculture Journal as the structure for how we're organizing permaculture, which had to do with, which actually kind of codified the PDC as the core educational element of permaculture, and that you got a certificate after that, and you can use the word, the word permaculture in a trade or business after you took your PDC, as long, you know, as long as you took a PDC, a, a PDC, and then you have two years of applied work, and you could get a Diploma of Permaculture Design in these different fields and blah, blah, blah. All that was published. And that basically, that became the template that everyone in doing permaculture all around the world began to use. And it created the framework that has been the framework for how people began organizing permaculture education ever since. And that, that was a different structure than was where the conversation that had been happening for several days among the community of permaculture practitioners that was going on, you know, before that. So there's this bizarre culture in permaculture around Bill Mollison as like the or a founder and the behavior that he had that set things up in certain ways that people, number one, a lot of people don't even know about. And number two, that have had consequences and are still having consequences for how we're even thinking about things that sets things up as a bounded set. You're either, you take your PDC, you're in. And I had that experience, that feeling from the beginning of permaculture that, oh, you take your PDC and you're in, you're in the door. And then you're free to do whatever you want, basically. And that's not how it's developing in a different direction now. It's like you get take your PDC and then you can't teach a PDC until you've got these other things. And, you know, there's something good about that. But David Holmgren wrote this article, uh, I believe the title was Permaculture Education, A Way Forward back in, I don't know when it was, the 90s sometime, where he was arguing that by setting permaculture up as a, a field of endeavor separate from all other fields, we set ourselves up in competition with engineering and architecture and landscape architecture, and they've got an adaptive advantage in those fields, and they're all scrambling for the same, ter- same territory that, that, that we're scrambling for if we're doing design. So we're likely to have a disadvantage in that scramble. And we frame permaculture as separate, and therefore we are actually shooting ourselves in the foot from the beginning because permaculture needs to infect every field of human endeavor. We need permaculture to be integrated into accounting and into psychology and into education. And permaculture paradigm has to be integrated into, into industrial design and cosmetic design and, you know, you name it, any, any realm of human endeavor has to be permaculturized. And if we say that you can't do permaculture or you can't teach permaculture unless dot, 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 then we are limiting ourselves and it's going to frame things, it's framing things in an inherently separation mindset way, at least potentially. And I think we're, we're in trouble if we do that. I mean, the, the thing that gets me about all this is that the cultural paradigm of Western culture, number one, it's spreading all over the world, like, I, I was going to say like wildfire, but wildfire is actually a good thing if you do it right, right? But, um, you know, because it's actually a, an indigenous management practice. But, you know, like some sort of a 
cancer or whatever, you know? And it is so cultural. It's so deep culturally. I mean, so much of what we express and the way we think is actually our ideas based in medieval culture. You know, the idea of property ownership that we've got is, you know, evolved from stuff that happened when the Normans conquered Britain, for God's sake, and, you know, the Romans and, and all, all that kind of stuff. You know, this, this whole Paleolithic commons culture that has been basically wiped off the, uh, wiped off the cultural historical record that we don't know much about that is actually much more likely to be able to be ecological. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm working on the coppice book that Mark Kropchak and I are working on and understanding the cultural context of coppicing and, and how it evolved from paleo, Paleolithic times up into the 17 and 1800s until it all, was almost extinguished in Western culture and in European culture. It's an amazing thing. And the, the medieval thinking that we still are laced with in our culture, it's crazy. We haven't gotten very far in the last several hundred years or thousand years. What you just referred to with Western culture, I think about the hierarchical structure of education and how that comes. These European models of one, two, three, four, as you step through each grade, each degree. Right. But what level of competency would you expect from a teacher before they would teach this kind of material? Or is that dependent entirely on the abilities of the instructor? But one of the core tenets of my educational philosophy is that we teach what we are. And that has so many implications. And one of the implications of that is that all of us teach. Saying we teach what we are is almost the identical thing to say to what Bill Mollison once said, that everything gardens. We all affect our environment. We all teach our surroundings who we think we are. I encourage everyone to own and acknowledge the teacher inside of themselves and to teach. I also, a key piece of my philosophy or my, my not just a philosophy, my understanding, my observation my interpretation of reality is that every human being designs. If we have the capacity to make a choice, we design because any choice making process is a design process. That's an inherent part of being human is the ability to design. And design is the core verb of permaculture. And I'll tell you, Mollison did not teach design, not in my permaculture course. You know, we did three weeks, permaculture course, six days a week, 10 hours a day. We did four hours of design in that course, which consisted of one hour of 10 people sitting in a circle in a space that he pointed us to talking about what we do in that space on the farm where we held the course. And then three hours sitting around hearing all the different groups talk about what they talked about for an hour. That was our design training. And that's just complete bullshit. That's why I went and got professional design training. And for many years, I was one of the only permaculture designers and educators that had professional design training. And the number of permaculture designers and educators that do have professional design training is still vanishingly small, is my guess. And maybe that's good, given the design training that's out there. But the design process that I lay out in Volume 2 of Edible Forest Gardens is something that I've developed as an ecological design process, not an ecological design process, an ecological design process that connects to this understanding about what culture is and that connects to this 
sense of separation mindset being the core problem we face. And actually, the ecological design process is itself a teacher that helps us to get beyond the ego-driven self because if you pay attention to the process of design on the inner level and what it does to us, what it requests of us, and what ecological design changes, how it changes us, then it gets us out of the way. It gets our egos out of the way and allows us to become a channel or a a facilitator of the process of a whole range of species and interacting individuals to find a good design for a set of purposes. And it teaches us about hermeneutics because that's about hermeneutics is all about the study of how we interpret things. And that is a key piece of site analysis and assessment. So the design process affects the paradigm. We're kind of wandering here, but I, All these pieces are so connected, it's hard to stay focused. I'm on the other end listening to this feeling kind of speechless as I'm just along. I feel very much like I'm just along for the ride. Yeah, well, me too, bro. I mean, the thing that's cool for me is as I have been researching and synthesizing everything I synthesize in order to write Edible Forest Gardens and then going out for the last eight years, almost nine years, and teaching it and propagating it and refining that information. I mean, I've learned so much. I really should rewrite Edible Forest Gardens, but I don't want to do it anytime soon. Please, no, no, no. My thinking has gone so far beyond that, and it's, it's very much an emergent. The, the, the stuff that's emerging from integrating what I integrated in, to write that book and teaching it afterwards and, and seeing the connections between the culture model that I laid out there that model of what culture is, which is itself not what culture is. It's just a model, okay? And there's other models for what culture is that are out there that we can, that we can look at, right, that have value. But when we integrate design process, as it's written in my book, with this culture model, with this understanding that, that separation mind is the core problem, and then we understand that because we believe in separation and we've lived as if we're separate, that the core strategy of permaculture is to mimic ecosystems in the design of complete cultural systems consciously. So that means we're consciously designing ecosystem mimic, mimic cultures. And that reintegrates our thinking and ourselves into nature. That's the big picture strategy here. And the design process is core to that because one thing I've learned from all this work that I've done the past 30 plus years and from the teaching that I've been doing for the past 20 years. No, it's been 30 years. I started teaching in 1984. Wow. Jeez, man. I'm getting old. It's okay. You make me feel young. Just turned 54 on May 19th. So I'm not a spring chicken. I'm a summer chicken. But in, uh, in tantric philosophy, not tantra as people in the West think of tantra being all about sex, but tantric philosophy, the deep tantric philosophy, there's a saying that the perceiver, the perceived, and the object of perception are one. And I've tried to penetrate that statement and just sit and stare out a window and look at something and realize and, and try and understand, does that feel true to me? Is that true to me? What's, what's my truth around that? And the more I investigate that, the more true that becomes. Because we see things not as they are, we see things as we are, right? And so what I've realized 
bouncing off of that is that the designer, the design, and the process of design are one. If you want to have an ecological design result, you've got to have an ecological design process, and you have to have a designer who's an ecologist. And that's a work in progress, man. I mean, I've been at this for 30-plus years, since I was 16, essentially. Actually, even earlier than that, given my orientation as a, as a young person, you know, going out and working in nature centers and picking up trash and spending a lot of time in the woods just hanging out and, and observing, you know, since I was six, seven, eight, you know, and I still have so much to learn. There's, I, I know nothing. I know nothing. And so I think in some ways, and I really want this to, I want to make sure that this statement gets into this podcast. Bill Mollison's designer's manual is a first draft. It is not the fricking Bible. It is a first fricking draft. You have to take that book with a grain of salt, okay? And to start basing a whole curriculum on that book and that book alone, it's hogwash. My book, Edward Forest Gardens, it's way a first draft. Way, way, way a first draft. There is so much for all of us to learn. So, so much. Everyone has to empower themselves to question, to learn, to teach, to do, to share, to be vulnerable to be strong and vulnerable at the same time. You know, it's just like, this is all a process, people. Permaculture is not finished yet by a long shot, by a long, long shot. We have barely just begun. And I think what we need is massive innovation and diversification. We don't need a unified movement. We need, we need massive diversification of people who are doing their best to interpret permaculture and, and, and live the ethics and the values in the way they see fit. I mean, there's people out there using swales in every design, whether or not they're the best thing for the site or not. And that's just criminal. That's not permaculture. Like any tool, it has its right place, a swale. You know, you got people out there saying, oh, if you're not doing earthworks, you're not doing permaculture. Bunk. I just think about my own progress through this. And this was a conversation that you and I had a couple months ago about how, for me, I came out of a PDC and I looked around the landscape and it was, well, how can I apply this to the landscape? Then as my perspective broadened, I looked at other ways that I could apply permaculture. And then it became more and more of a big umbrella that encompassed so many things. And really, you could stand anything underneath that umbrella if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. But that sometimes it seems like the conversations that we wind up having in the community make it almost comical how small that umbrella can be oh yeah you know like a clown walking a tightrope with a little eight inch umbrella as something of their costume rather than this really big <laughs> all-encompassing thing that you could stand a family under don't forget the big shoes and the red the red round nose man totally but see the thing is that the landscape piece is central it's essential and essential because we want to learn ecosystem mimicry. We've got to learn that in the landscape. We've got to learn that by interacting with natural systems and designing systems and getting the feedback from nature. Do we get it yet? Do we understand it yet? Are we doing well? And once we learn how to mimic ecosystems in that very concrete place, so which also, by the way, in a multifunctional way, hey, is helping us grow our food, fuel, fiber, fodder, and fertilizer, you know, whatever. So it sustains us, but it also teaches us well enough so we can then begin applying these more abstract realms of social and economic systems in the, the inner landscape. 
But if we don't apply it in the social and economic and in a landscape, it's not going to sustain on the landscape level. It just won't. I've been there. I've done it. I've screwed, screwed it up. You know, I started with an F there, and then I said screwed it up. You know, it's like I've had so many problems and errors and made so many mistakes and learned so much, and there's so much more to learn and so many more mistakes to have. You know, it's like it's exciting. The whole point of the design process is to make as many mistakes as fast as possible on paper so you can make some new and interesting ones on the ground that we can actually learn something decent from. But yeah, I mean, the umbrella is is everything. There's an article that I'll need to see if I can find that was a prominent video game designer talking about permaculture and video games, and that might provide a balance to some of this conversation about the other things that we can stuff under there. Well, look, all right, so here's, an, here's another example, okay? So, um, you know, you were talking with was it, uh, Carl Steyer about NVC. Was it, was that, did I get the name right? Close enough. Yeah. And back in the 2000, early 2000s, I was teaching a PDC and I was teaching NVC, nonviolent communication. And I, previous to that class, I had taught and we were working with the design process that I teach. Now, in the design process that I teach, there's different chunks. You know, there's goals, articulation, and I talk about goals, articulation, because goal setting, my experience of goal setting is that when we set goals, we're dividing ourselves at the chin and our, we're imposing goals on our body. It's coming from the head. It's not goals, articulation is about detecting our goals deep inside and, and letting them come from someplace other than just our head. Of course, you want to integrate it with our head totally, but the more full body, full being kind of thing that we articulate the goals from that place. And then we have site analysis and assessment, right? And the goals guide the site analysis and assessment. Analysis and assessment are separate but related functions of the mind. Analysis literally means to break something down to its component parts. We use the scale of permits. We look at climate, landform, water, social and economic structures, access and circulation, patterns, and vegetation and wildlife and microclimates and on down the list, right? That's, that's analyzing the landscape and saying, okay, let's look at the climate aspect of the landscape and learn what we can about that. And, and then we go through each one of those pieces and we make observations and then we interpret. We make observations and we interpret. Observations are the analysis. It's the what. It's, it's the data. The assessment is the so what. What does it mean? What's it mean relative to my goals? Why is that important to me? Does it matter there's a puddle in that location or not? Do I need to know how dense the grass is, how many blades of grass per square foot there are or not? Well, if you're designing a, a forest garden, maybe not. If you're designing a golf course, yeah. If, you're, if you want to know how good your pasture is, you might want to know how many blades of grass there are per square foot, right? So it depends, right? So the analysis and the assessment, the observation, the interpretation, they're separate functions. And so often, we don't distinguish between those two. Now, I was teaching nonviolent communication, and in nonviolent communication, they talk about having four steps where you, can, you communicate with someone about a conflict. You say, well, what happened? When this happened, they say, you say, what happened? Then you talk about your feeling. When this happened, I felt this. And then you talk about your need. I need this. And then you make a request of the other person. So it's, what happened, how you feel, what do you need, what's your request. Those are the four basic steps of nonviolent communication. I taught that in my class, and one of my students said, but Dave, 
they're missing something. I said, oh, what are they missing? The interpretation, they said. Because something happens, and then we interpret what happened from our own perspective. And then we have feelings. The feelings come after the interpretation. And if we're not clear about what our interpretation is, then we don't have power to affect our feelings. But we can actually choose our experience in the face of anything. Someone shooting at us or someone hitting us in the face or whatever, we can choose. We get to choose, actually, our, our response to any stimulus. There's always a gap. We may not see that gap. It may pass by super fast, and we may think it isn't there, but it's there. And so when we apply design process in that realm of the inner landscape, we, 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 can, we can refine the tool of nonviolent communication and empower ourselves to design our reality. And I think that's pretty cool. And it goes to show how when you start doing what Mollison did and drawing ideas from different places and connecting them and interconnecting these ideas is that they, you get enrichment from that interconnection because nonviolent communication still has some evolution to do and permaculture needs the evolution that nonviolent communication can bring to it and vice versa. And so we, we gain if we consciously apply these things and investigate and observe the response that our bodies have, that our minds have, that the systems have that we're designing. Observation is key, but self-observation is central. Central. So Christopher asks, I've read certain people involved in permaculture state recently that unless you have years of experience, you shouldn't be out there taking on any clients because you'll only sully, you'll only sully permaculture in the long run. I also had one guest teacher at my PDC who is a very successful designer who took on his first client immediately after he completed his PDC. Is there a guideline here? Before I have you answer, Dave, I just want to say, because I'm really the junior in this conversation for years of experience, I think you have to take on clients as early as you can. I did within a couple of weeks of getting out of my PDC. I was having conversations with people about this. I was designing my own site and going through iterations. I took on some jobs with um, nonprofit organizations and other groups where I wasn't being paid for the work, but I was providing design and some insights within this structure, which allowed me to develop a great deal of experience and feel comfortable putting in more hours in that design than I would have been able to if someone was paying me by the hour, because I wouldn't have been able to price the project in a way that would even pay minimum wage for my hours let alone some kind of a living wage. You know, I could spend 40 or 50 hours helping to design a Boy Scout Eagle project in concert with this one church, as opposed to saying, well, we want you to consult on this project. What are your rates? And I go, well, this is what I, my hourly rate is, and I'm sorry. But what are your thoughts on a guideline for someone getting experience and going out and doing design? Oh, man. Well, I, I don't have a policy, like a clear policy that I'd like our thought through and articulated on this. I have a, a fairly basic, long-standing belief in what I call situational ethics. So it depends, right? So that, then I can say it depends, and that's a cop-out. And I can also say it depends, and then let's say, let's, let's find out, let's talk about what it depends upon, and then we can, have an, we can assess each situation. So what does it depend on? It depends on how much experience you have, and what fields you studied before you took your PDC. How good your PDC was. How confident do you feel? Are, are you a go-getter? Are you brash? If you're brash, then I encourage you not. 
I would encourage people to go out less. You know, and be more be and be more circumspect. If you're very circumspect, I'd probably encourage people more. So, you know, it's like how familiar are you with the landscape that you're dealing with? Did you just move to the tropics and you don't you know nothing, or have you lived there your whole life? I mean, there's so many factors, right? So, you know, I mean, there's there's very few hard and fast rules in my opinion. And as I said earlier in the conversation, I encourage people to get out there and design and teach and do and learn and share. And also, in the midst of all of that, to be really honest about what you know and what you don't know and get really comfortable with that three-word phrase, I don't know. It's a really great phrase. I don't know, comma, let's find out together. Or I don't know, let me research that and get back to you. Or I don't know, maybe you should hire someone else. There's all kinds of things that can come after that comma, right? And that's again, depends on who you are, what the situation is. If you're way out in the boondocks and there's no one else around, then you make shit up. That's just how it is. Go out and play is what I would say. Be honest about what you know. Don't aggrandize. You know, that's the problem is not that you're doing permaculture and not qualified. The problem is that people aggrandize themselves and aren't representing themselves honestly to people. So people they're working with or for can get an accurate sense of what you have to offer. That's the issue. You know, I still tell people, look, this is experimental. Yeah, swales are great in theory, you know, but I've never seen any clear guidelines on how deep or why the swale should be. You know, I've seen a few numbers that Mollison gives on how frequently in the landscape, how far apart they should be from each other. But when I read any data on you know, hydrologic soil groups and runoff coefficients and any of that stuff, it's way more complicated than Mollison let on at all. And those are things that need to be taken into account. So, I mean, you can throw some swales in, but do the research. Do your homework. It's not rocket science. Rocket science is easy. They have equations. We're trying to figure this stuff out in very complex systems where the variables are infinite. But the key variables are limited. And, you know, we need to learn the, the key variables. And hopefully you learn that in your permaculture course. But you probably didn't, knowing what I know about permaculture courses. You probably didn't learn all the key variables on every aspect. So choose your field, get familiar with that field, and build from there. You know, back in the day, you know, when I started out, I was a generalist. And, you know, in early succession, generalists are appropriate. But in some areas of the, of the, of the world, there's generalist permaculture is still very appropriate because it's, it's a new succession situation. But as things develop, specialization is a way to avoid competition and increase cooperation. So it varies. And this goes back to something we were talking about earlier when I was touching on how my mindset has changed over time. That as I move into this and I look at the niches that I want to fill, there's a piece of this that is communication. There's a piece of it that's education for me. And another piece is also specializing in eastern woodlands. Yeah. This is the area that I live in. I don't travel a lot. I don't plan to travel a lot. And I think that I'm doing a disservice to others to try to be a generalist because there are lots of things that I don't know. I've turned down plenty of projects in the tropics. I've had a lot offered to me in places. I'm like, you know, I'm not really comfortable going there and teaching. and. I can teach general principles. I can teach design process. I can help people observe better. 
but you know, I don't know the landscape. I, you know, I, I would go to certain places only under certain conditions when I had a certain kind of team around me that I could work with. You know, people have to, again, self-observe and say, okay, am I someone who tends not to see myself accurately and clearly? Then I need to be careful. I can sell the name of permaculture. But, you know, the person who's asking the question and worry about selling the name of permaculture, those are the people that we generally have to worry about. The people that we have to worry about are the ones who are like, oh, yeah, come on, let's go. I know what I'm doing. Blah. You know, and they go out there and they think they know stuff that they don't actually know. Those are the ones that we have to worry about. If we have to worry about them at all. Maybe we don't have to worry about it. I don't think we have to really worry about anybody. It's all going to get come out in the wash. But one other thing about Christopher's question that I th- that we've gone kind of rounds about in this conversation, which I think will bring this first session to a close, as I've only got a few minutes left, is about who is qualified to teach everybody. permaculture. My, my, if, if, you, if you could hear me say everybody while you were talking, I was, that, was a, that was a reactionary thing on my part. Uh, so not, every, not everybody, but, you know, everybody. One of the pieces for me when we talk about organizing and structuring permaculture I kind of like that thought makes me itch a little too much because about like who about about the organizing and who controls and what is what is not. I like like when I like it when people ask me those questions because it's not about actually prescribing what permaculture is, but it's about it makes me face what my own thoughts are and requires me to articulate it that it's not a definition of permaculture, but it's my definition. And it's through conversations like what we're having today and through others that when people are looking for a, I'll do my finger quotes at the moment, a qualified permaculture instructor, that it's more through conversations like this of getting to know people, understanding what their, if you will, their permaculture lineage is to understand what a person's particular mindset might be. That if I go to someone's website and they don't list even who the instructors are going to be, or how long they've been studying, or things like that, that kind of throws up a red flag for me. And I'm perfectly okay for people to say that what I am teaching for permaculture is bullshit, and call me out on it. But at the same time, by having these conversations and putting myself out there, it gives people an opportunity to question what it is that I say. Right, and people should be doing that anyway. And I'm not saying that you would give a recommendation for any of the work that I do, But at least through these kinds of conversations and these dialogues, if someone says, hey, I'm going to go study with so-and-so, or even this, someone says they want to go study with Dave Jackie, they have your book to look at as an example of your work. They have this interview as a place to go to to say, okay, well, do I think that that he's full of crap or not? And if they say no, then that's better. We move forward, you know? I'm full of crap much of the day. It's good to remember that. We're all full of crap most of the time. Yeah. Uh, but being able to examine that and be able to decide for yourself. What are valid forms of knowledge? What are valid ways of knowing? Each person has to decide that for themselves. You know, is there such a thing as a qualified teacher of permaculture? What does that mean? That's a meaning that we're creating, folks. That's something that is created by us, that sense of qualification. And... You know, that qualification is going to vary depending on what your purposes are. As usual, the value of anything depends on what your purposes are. I mean, someone coming out of a PDC with no prior experience, oh, yeah, sure, they can do a design for someone's garden and 
have it be a collaborative design process or something, you know, but if you present yourself as the expert, then the harder they come, the harder they fall, right? Whose karma is that anyway? In some ways, I'm more anarchist about this than I used to be, but I'm seeing the value in that more and more, I guess, as I watch people's cultural preconditioning keep inserting itself and asserting itself in very sly ways. It's, it's amazing to watch myself and how separation consciousness and control issues and unconscious fear and my, all my ego shit, how it, how it reasserts itself even while I'm watching like around the corner. Like, it's like, I'm amazed. And so it goes. Welcome to the human race. And welcome to permaculture. I mean, you know, if humans are involved, it's going to be messy. And we got to bless the mess. Otherwise, we're going to be suffering. And that was Dave Jackie. In preparing this episode, Dave and I both listened to the audio before it went out. And he asked me to correct his statement about tantric philosophy. In the interview, he said, the perceiver, the perceived, and the object of perception are one. What he meant to say was, the perceiver, the perceived, and the process of perception are one. A subtle but big difference. All in all, I have to say that I agree with much of what Dave shared in this episode. We cannot keep calling the non-landscape portion of our design invisible, or those elements will remain there, on the outside, away from view. We need to communicate about these ideas differently in order to understand them and make them a part of our larger designs so that what we do can continue long after our ability to maintain or consult on a system is gone. For much the same reason, the designer's manual is only a beginning. Yes, I do think that every permaculture designer should have a copy of it in their library as a reference and to understand some of the early vision as expressed by Bill Mollison. But in addition to that book, we need a large library of materials to reference and cross-reference and research to create good designs. With that, I would love to see a new edition of the Designer's Manual, written every decade or so as an encyclopedia of permaculture that can include more information about what we've learned over the years, but written as a collective cooperative piece by the community that takes the best of what everyone has to offer and focuses on their areas of specialty to create a book with multiple perspectives and voices. Get Dave Jackie and Ben Falk to write about formal design, Jude Hobbs and Andrew Millicent about permaculture education, Marisha Auerbach and Rachel Kaplan to cover urban permaculture, and Karen Olson Ramanujan and Adam Brock on social permaculture. And those are just some names and topics off the top of my head. The designer's manual is written by Mollison is over 500 pages. There's room for many authors to contribute to such an effort. If you'd be interested in working on something like this, maybe we could get a proposal together and create a new designer's manual for the 21st century. Whatever your permaculture plans, I'm here to help. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. The next episode is an interview with the author Derek Jensen, which comes out on Friday, December 26th. Until then, spend each day building a world of abundance by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.